Okay, let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd open up your word to our hearts today. We ask for willingness to not only see what is clearly written, but apply it in terms of worship and service now. And we pray that you would just give us an entrancing view of heaven, that it would be compelling. The Lord would give us that hope that we read about in, in 1 Peter 1.13, how we're fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May that be our portion, Lord. Help us to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pick up in Revelation 7, verse 10, and go through the rest of the chapter. So let's go ahead and take a look at that now. And they, the they refers to these people who are clothed in white robes, holding palm branches. They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I've heard people say, and I've read over the years as being a Christian, they will say this often, that guy is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Have you ever heard that statement made about somebody? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. But actually, the opposite is true. I'm no earthly good unless I am heavenly minded. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, said it this way. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. And in the book Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes this allegory, and he talks about a man named Christian. And Christian is journeying on his way toward the celestial city, and he's asked by his companion, when do you find yourself in your most wholesome and most vigorous spiritual state? And Christian responds, when I think of the place to which I am going, which is heaven, the celestial city. So this morning, because Revelation chapter 7 is all about heaven, we're going to be thinking about heaven together. We're going to meditate on heaven. Heaven is not a subject in the Bible of minor importance because the word heaven is mentioned in the Bible 434 times. The word heavens, plural, is found 179 times. The word 
or the phrase heavenly places is found five times. So if you add those up, that's 618 times that the word heaven appears in your Bible. And this doesn't include all the other times in the Bible that describe heaven, like paradise, the new Jerusalem, Abraham's bosom, the holy city, the tabernacle of God, or the Father's house. All of those other references also describe heaven, so you have to pile all those together. You probably have close to a thousand references in the scripture to heaven. So since God has mentioned heaven so often, I think we can safely assume that he wants us to know about it, and he wants us to long for it. He wants it to be something tugging at our heart. And there are three different phases in which the Christian is going to experience heaven. You've got the immediate phase, the intermediate phase, and the final phase. Let me explain what I mean. The, in, the immediate phase is when a person is born again, heaven comes to that person. And the Gospel of John, when you read the Gospel of John, he talks about eternal life, but not eternal life as something you're going to get in the future. Eternal life in the Gospel of John is something that the Christian already has. He has it now. He possesses it right now. And eternal life is simply another way of talking about God's life. The life that's in God comes and, and we experience that very life as Christians in this present world. Do you remember John the Baptist and Jesus? They both, pre both preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? So when you become a Christian, you enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not something you will enter into when you die. It's something that you enter into at the moment of your conversion, your faith in Jesus Christ. It is true that the Christian is someone who one day will go to heaven, but it's equally true that the Christian is someone to whom heaven has already come. And so maybe instead of asking people, when you die, are you going to heaven? Maybe we should be asking people, has heaven come to you? Have you experienced something of heaven now in this life because a true Christian has they've experienced the life of God the joy of God the love of God the peace that passes understanding these things are experiences that the genuine Christian has so the truth is no person's going to enter into heaven who has not had heaven enter into him already so that's the immediate phase upon your conversion you start to experience something of heaven, the first installment of heaven. Not everything about heaven, but the first installment. Now the second one is the intermediate phase. And this is what you and I normally think about when we think about heaven. The intermediate phase is when a person dies, their body goes back to the dust, their soul leaves the body, and their soul goes to be with God in heaven. So that's the intermediate phase. It's not the final phase of heaven, but it's the one that souls are in right now. All those people who have died in faith, their soul is in the presence of God now. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's, that's this intermediate phase. But even in this intermediate phase, the full and final experience of heaven hasn't been realized yet. Because there's something still waiting for those souls who are in heaven. Do you know what it is? It's the resurrection of their bodies. See, God is not, when, when God saves someone, he saves them entirely. Just the way he created them. God created people with a body and a soul. So he doesn't just save their soul. 
he saves their body as well. And eventually he's going to take that body from the dust of the ground, raise it back up, glorify it, resurrect it, take the soul, reunite that soul to a resurrected body, and you as a total person, body and soul, will be with God forever. That's the final and eternal phase of heaven, where we dwell in the new heavens and the new earth that God will create one day. That's, that's the eternal phase of heaven. Now, let's try to think back two weeks. It's been a little while since we were in Revelation chapter 7. In this chapter, God gives us two visions. One's an earthly vision, that's verses 1 to 8, and one's a heavenly vision, that's verses 9 to 17. And I think he gives us a vision of heaven here, the last half of chapter 7, in order to inspire us to persevere. Can you imagine how inspiring it would have been for first century Christians to, to read the book of Revelation and read about the heaven that they were going to? Because they were being persecuted. They were suffering for their faith. Many of them would die as martyrs because they would not renounce their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so they would end up dying for their faith. But Revelation chapter 7 gives us them this beautiful hope of where they're headed. They're headed to this place of bliss and happiness and perfection. So, we've got these two visions. There's an earthly vision, verses 1 to 8, and there's a heavenly vision, verses 9 to 17. Now remember the earthly vision. In the earthly vision, we have 12,000 of 12 different tribes of Israel sealed with a mark on their foreheads, and this mark is the name of God. So they're sealed with the name of God on their foreheads, implying that God owns them, and God has purchased them, and they are secure now. They're sealed in Him. I believe, I, I, there's many, <laughs> let me just say this, there's many different interpretations of the book of Revelation. So when I give you my thoughts, take them for what they are, and study your Bible for yourself, and uh, see what you think. So one approach to the book of Revelation is to say that these are Jewish people. And they live in the final seven years of Earth's history. And uh, these 144,000 Jews are being converted during the final seven years, which they call the Great Tribulation. That's a very popular view today. If you go back about 175 years, no one even knew this view existed. It's a fairly new view in church history. I think what we see here in chapter 7, these 144,000 is a symbolic picture of all of God's people. Think about the number 144,000. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12, God's Old Testament saints. 12, God's New Testament saints. 12 times 12 times 1,000. 10 to the third power. This innumerable multitude of people. It's, it's a symbolic number that means all of God's people from Adam to the last man who ever lives, all of those who have been saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are symbolically pictured for us under these 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 exactly from each one of these 12 tribes. Okay, but then in verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and when he looked, he did not see 144,000 people. He heard someone say there was 144,000, but then he looks to see who these people are, and what he sees is a multitude that nobody could count. And he didn't see just Jewish people, he saw people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. That tells me that 
The first vision of 144,000 people is the same as the second vision. They're the same people. In the first vision, they're seen on earth, being sealed by the Holy Spirit and protected from the wrath of God. In the second vision, we see them in heaven, having already made it to their final destination. So, in the first vision, it's a symbolic picture of all of God's people. In the second vision, we see plainly that this, this number is so great, you can't even count them, and they're from every tribe, people, and tongue on the face of the earth. So, what we have here is the true Israel of God. Now, if you talk about Israel, Israel was God's chosen people, right? They were God's covenant people. Well, that's what the church is. We're God's covenant people. We're God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, they came from the nation of Israel. They were ethnic Jews. In the New Testament, you've got Jews and Gentiles. But together, the church is God's covenant people. As, as In the New Testament, just like the Jews were in the Old Testament. Okay, so here we've got this great number of people nobody could count from every tribe, people, and tongue. What are they doing in this place? Well, verse 9 says, they were clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So they're clothed in white robes. What does a white robe stand for? Purity. Purity. Absolutely. They're holding palm branches. Now we talked about this two weeks ago, but when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, everyone was waving their palm branches. This was a way in ancient times for people to um, to celebrate victory, like if, an, if a conquering general were to return to his hometown after winning a great battle, the people would welcome him, waving these palm branches. So, we're holding the emblems of purity, well, we're not holding them, but we're wearing the emblem of purity, and we're holding the emblem of our victory. We're victorious, and we're pure there in the kingdom of Christ. And we're doing something else. We're crying out something. Verse 10, what we're crying out is, and we're crying out with a loud voice. We're not whispering this. We are shouting at the top of our lungs. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now don't understand this to mean, God, you need to be saved. You need salvation. Because <laughs> God does not need to be saved, does he? God is the one who gives salvation and he's not the one who gets it. What we're saying is that, God, you are the one who has given us salvation. The Father and the Lamb have provided us with deliverance. We talked about this word yesterday. Rescue, deliverance. You're talking, a little baby falls into a swimming pool. The dad dives in and pulls out his, he just saved him, right? He's rescued that little baby from death. We needed to be rescued from the wrath of God because our sins deserved God's judgment. Christ came into the world to pay the penalty to rescue us from wrath. So that's what we cry in heaven. Lord God, you have provided us with the salvation. It was not us that saved ourselves. In fact, we didn't even help you do it. You did it all by yourself. So, when the church worships God for his saving work, what do the angels do? Look at verse 11. In verse 10, we are crying out that God has saved us. In verse 11, it says, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. 
And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So the church worships God, and this elicits a response from the angels. The angels respond to our worship with their own worship. They fall on their faces, and they worship God, and this is what they say. And notice there's an amen at the beginning, and there's an amen at the end. These are like bookends, and the books in, in between are seven excellencies of God. Seven of his attributes. God is, let's find them here. God is blessed. God is glorious. God is wise. God is due thanksgiving. God is honorable. God is powerful. And God is mighty. And he isn't that way for just one year or 10 million years. He's that way forever and ever and ever. So that's what the angels, that's how they worship. You are wise, you're blessed, you're glorious, you're to be thanked, you're mighty, you're powerful forever and ever. And they're falling on their faces doing this before God over and over. So that's what's going on in heaven. That brings us to the rest of the chapter, which is what we want to get in today, which really opens up for us heaven. All of us as Christians are going to this place. We ought to be a little curious about what it's going to be like. We're going to spend eternity in heaven. I hope this is whet your appetite to understand this is where I'm going. I, I, I want to get a little bit familiar with this place before I get there, don't you? So let's try to get familiar with it today. We have two things going on in the rest of this chapter. There's an earthly identity of a great multitude that's spoken to us. We see the earthly identity of this great multitude. Then we see the spiritual privileges of this great multitude. So first, we find out what this earthly identity is. Secondly, we find out what their spiritual or heavenly privileges are. So first of all, their earthly identity. Notice in verse 13, one of the elders asks John a question. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? Now why would, why would this elder in heaven ask John this question? Is it because he doesn't know the answer? I don't think so. I think he knows the answer. Haven't you asked one of your children a question that you already knew the answer to? When you did that, why did you do it? Because you want to get them to think for themselves, right? This, ain't, this, this elder wants John to grapple with this question. He wants him to think it through. Now, how does John respond? He says to him, my Lord, you know. In other words, I don't know. Beats me. <laughs> I don't know who they are and where they've come from, but you do. And so he says to me, okay, let me give you the answer. And so the question is twofold. Who are they, number one, is that the question? Yeah. Who are they and um, where have they come from? Okay. He answers the second question first. Where have they come from? These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. That's where they came from. Who are they? That's the answer to this, the other question. And that comes at the end of verse 14. These are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who are they? They're the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Where do they come from? They came out of the Great Tribulation. Okay? So we're with together so far? We may not understand those answers, but those are the two answers that this elder gives to those questions. So let's try to understand the questions. First of all, 
Where did they come from? They came out of the Great Tribulation. Now, this is where we're going to have a problem because you have been steeped in modern dispensational prophetic teaching. I, I already know what you believe about the Great Tribulation. If, you, if you've been a Christian very long, you believe that it's the last seven years of Earth's history where there is the outpouring of God's wrath on the world. That's a, that's a, new, a newer teaching in the history of the church. It, came, it was invented around 1830. I don't think that's what John is talking about here. I don't think he's talking about the last seven years of church history. Let's let John interpret John. Let's look at the other places where John is an author and John writes about tribulation. Sometimes he even mentions great tribulation. What is John talking about when he writes about this? Well, let's take a look. In John 16.33, John writes, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. Those are the words of Christ. In Revelation 1, verse 9, this is the same book. It's the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on, on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now think that through. Here John is writing, same book, same author, uses the same word, tribulation, and he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. John was in the tribulation in the first century. Do you see that? Okay, uh, Revelation 2.9, when he writes, when the Lord writes to the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Again, Smyrna was a church in the first century that the Lord Jesus was writing a letter to. In Revelation 2.10, he goes on to say, do not fear what you are about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. This was something happening to the church in the first century. Many of them would be martyred. Those who were faithful until death were given the crown of life. Jesus calls this tribulation. And then in chapter 2, verse 22, the, the church of Thyatira, he says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Again, this is a first century church. Jesus, writing a letter to them, speaks about great tribulation that they were experiencing. So the church in the first century was experiencing this great tribulation. Tribulation. And in fact, there's only one verse in all of the Bible that mentions the great tribulation. There's only one. It's right here in Revelation chapter 7. This is it. So in order to understand what it is, first of all, we should ask, well, who's, who's going to be going through it or who's coming out of it? It's the 144,000 of the first half of chapter 7, who are also the innumerable company from every nation in the second half of chapter 7, who are they? They're all of God's people throughout history. And if all of God's people throughout history are coming out of the great tribulation, then when does the great tribulation take place? All of history. 
This is talking about God. If you're a Christian, God has called you to be faithful until death. Paul would tell people in Acts 14.22, he would tell them that uh, it's only through tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. And Paul would write to Timothy, and he would say that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Persecution and suffering and tribulation are not foreign concepts in the Bible. This is the normal Christian life. We, we're kind of in a little bit of a bubble, and we have been in America, but look at church history. The last 2,000 years, we're the anomaly. We're the rare situation. There's other places in the world today where people face great suffering and martyrdom for their faith. So, folks, we have been living in the Great Tribulation, believers in God and Jehovah in the Old Testament, and believers in Christ in the New, throughout the history of the world. This tribulation has been taking place. The devil has been hurling his best at God's people for all of time. And here he's talking about all those saints who've come out of the Great Tribulation and who are now in heaven. So he's taking all of you who have been faithful to follow Jesus Christ until death. You're taking out of this present world where this tribulation exists and you're brought into this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So there is the answer to the question, where have they come from? What about the, the question, who are they? Well, his answer is, they are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Now, how did their robes become white? Remember, they're wearing white robes. But they washed them in blood. Shouldn't they be red? You'd think that these robes are going to be stained with blood, but they're not. They go from filthy dirty to pure, spotless white robes. So it says that they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. If, this, if we're correct in understanding these people in heaven as all of God's people throughout history, then all of them wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That means the blood of Jesus Christ. That means people in the Old Testament, before Jesus was born, were also saved by the blood of Christ. Do you see that? Because they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And we too, on the other side of the cross... We look back, we've washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. What this is telling you is that every person who has ever been saved throughout history has been saved by Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. The people in the Old Testament look forward to the Messiah and what He would do, and us, we look backward to our Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what He did, but all of us are saved by His blood. That's how we get white robes. We're trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. Now notice something, it says they have washed their robes. In other words, they did something. They did something. Well, that's part of it. They repented, they put their faith in Christ, they were baptized, in fact, they were converted. They, yeah, there you go, Craig, that's good. So, if, if you're going to wash your robe, what does that tell you, you think about, what your robes used to look like. You, you recognize that they were dirty, that they needed to be cleaned up. A person cannot be saved who doesn't recognize their sin. He has to recognize, number one, he's a sinner, that he is under the judgment of God because of the evil things that he's done. Mind, heart, and will, 
It's not just the external things, it's the things that go on in this brain of ours. Those are sinful as well. The things that go on in our hearts, things like covetousness and pride and selfishness. We may not see those on the outside, but God sees the heart. So God sees that all of us are black with sin. That it has marred our robes. We need white robes. And these people are the ones who washed them in the blood of the Lamb. They did something. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if they truly believed, they followed up that faith with, with baptism. Because Jesus commands all who put their faith in Christ and turn away from their old life to be baptized and be, begin following Him. Now, the Old Testament counterpart to the cross of Christ was the Passover. If you're, if you're new to the things of the Bible, let me just give you a real quick you probably watch this in movies, but <laughs> anyway, in the Old Testament, there was such a thing called the Passover. God was calling his Jewish people out of Egypt where they were slaves. And he, he began bringing all these different plagues on the, the land of Egypt in order to convince the Pharaoh to let his people go free. And the Pharaoh was very stubborn. and He wouldn't let them go free until finally God said, okay, this is the one that's going to do it. I'm going to kill all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, and that will convince the Pharaoh to let my people go. But he said to his own people, you are to take a lamb, one lamb for one family, one household. You're to kill it at twilight, and then you're to let its blood drain into a basin. You're going to take a, a branch, a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, like, like a paintbrush almost, and paint over the lintels and the doorposts of your home. It's to be sort of like... Um, a sign, this bloody sign, was that the people inside are being sheltered by that blood. And then there was going to be a destroying angel that would go through the land. And wherever there was not blood on the doors, he was to smite and to kill the firstborn of that family. But wherever he saw the blood, he passed over, and he did not execute his wrath and judgment on the people inside. That's the Old Testament counterpart to what we find in the New Testament, which is the cross of Christ. And just as they took that branch of hyssop, put it in the blood, and painted their doorstep, we take faith. Faith is the hyssop that we take. And we take the blood of Christ by faith, and we apply it to our soul. We believe. And by believing, we're, we're sprinkling that blood upon this filthy soul, this sinful, dirty soul, and it turns white before God. Just like the, this, you go up to the snow. I like to look at those mountains in the wintertime and see the pure white snowy hills. That's what our black souls turn into by the blood of Christ. Absolutely pure and spotless. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the blood of Christ has done for us. So we've got to call on the name of the Lord. We've got to believe, we've got to trust Him, we've got to repent. That's how we wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. So, that's the identity of these people. They come out of great tribulation, and they are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Let's look at the privileges of this great multitude. And I don't want you to miss verse 15, the way it starts. For this reason they are before the throne of God. Don't miss those words for this reason. What is the whole reason anybody is going to stand before the throne of God 
with white robes on, waving palm branches and crying salvation to our God. What's the reason, according to the scripture? They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It, the basis of your salvation is not you, it's what Christ did when he died for you on the cross. We don't really get any credit for this because we have really nothing to do with it. God did it for you. It's a work of Christ that's perfect and finished. People ask me all the time, well, who's going to be in heaven? Are Jews going to be there? Are Muslims and Hindus? Are Catholics going to be in heaven? Are Orthodox people going to be in heaven? Are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? Are Protestants going to be there? Who's going to be in heaven? Well, the answer is in our Bible here. All those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb will be there. That means you have to have faith, personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His atoning work on the cross to be in heaven. So, whoever, whoever it can be Catholic, Protestant, whoever it is, if they have faith in Jesus Christ as the God-man, and that's important too, they, they trust who He really is, He's not an angel, He's God, become flesh, they're trusting in what he accomplished on the cross. They're ones who are entitled to the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's notice three blessings, three privileges that are those of this heavenly multitude. First one is they are always in the immediate presence of God. So notice verse 15. It says, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over him. Here we've got three images. A throne, a temple, and a tabernacle. Do you see what all three of those images have in common? All of them talk about God's immediate presence. God is the one who sits on the throne... God is the one who is in a temple and worshipped in the temple. God is the one who is in the tabernacle and approached by the high priest on the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle. This is God's immediate presence that he's talking about. So read it again. These ones that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, they are the ones that are before the throne of God where God sits. And they serve him day and night in his temple where he dwells. And he who sits on the throne, that is God the Father, will spread, notice these words, he's going to spread his tabernacle over them. Now do you understand what a tabernacle is? It's a tent. It's a glorified tent. It's a giant tent in which God was worshipped in the Old Testament before the temple was built. Before they had a physical structure, they worshipped God in a tent. And God told them to do it. I mean, it wasn't their idea. It was God's idea. It doesn't say that God pitched his tent next to them. It says he spread his tabernacle over them, enveloping them, surrounding them, so they can't get away from him. They can never be anywhere but in his presence ever again, because God spreads his tabernacle. Oh, it's like this tent. Imagine a tent coming over you, and you're inside of it, and there's no way you can escape it, and then you never want to escape it. You are, that's ecstasy. 
that's joy unspeakable and full of glory to be in this tabernacle. And in the final couple chapters of the book of Revelation, it says uh, there is no temple in this, in this new heavenly city because the Lord God and his lamb are the temple. Do you see the imagery? God is everywhere and you are always in his immediate presence. And he's manifesting himself and disclosing himself to you throughout eternity. And you, you, can re, you can approach him. Well, even now we can boldly approach his throne because of the blood of Christ. But we will have access to God. Fellowship with our creator. So that's the very first privilege of heaven. And it's the greatest privilege that we're ever going to receive. If we don't believe that, we don't really understand how great it is to be able to approach God Almighty. He is the treasure of heaven. Heaven is no heaven without God and the Lamb being in it. Because we love God and we love Christ, we want to be in heaven. The greatest privilege is not that we're going to live forever, because people in hell are going to live forever. It's no privilege to live forever. It's not even a privilege to live in a perfect paradise-like condition if God is not there. The greatest privilege of all is that we get to know God intimately and personally and have access to Him forever, for all time. And that's what we'll be doing. The Westminster Catechism asks this question, What is the chief end of man? Perhaps you've never heard this question asked before. What is the chief end, I mean, meaning purpose, what's the chief purpose for man? Why was he created? Why does he exist? And this is their answer. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what heaven is. It's us glorifying God and enjoying him, enjoying being with him and in his presence for all eternity. Heaven is going to be the answer to our Creation. We're created for a purpose to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It will be answered in eternity to come, the age to come. Do you remember the Old Testament priests? When God was handing out His inheritance and His allotments to all of His people when they entered into Canaan, the priests didn't get anything. They didn't get any land allotments. And the reason given for that was that the Lord Himself was their inheritance. They didn't get the land because they got to be ministering in the presence of God. And that was way more valuable than having some land. Well, did you know that the New Testament says that every Christian is a priest? That you are a priest of God if you are a saved? Meaning that you bring sacrifices of praise and worship to Him? Just like a priest would bring sacrifices? That you intercede for others by praying for their salvation? Just like a priest would intercede for other people? We're all priests of God... And the truth is that our great inheritance is not some land somewhere, but it's the Lord God. He is our inheritance. He is our treasure. <clears throat> so that's the first privilege of heaven. We have access to the immediate presence of God. He's everywhere. Okay, the second one is, these same people will never again face the sufferings of an earthly tribulation. Because he says... In verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. There's not going to be any more hunger, no more thirst, 
no more scorching heat. And these were all things that persecuted believers faced in the first century when John lived. Let's say, for example, a father was imprisoned or executed because of his faith. There would be no one to provide for his family. Hunger and thirst would become very real to his wife and to his children. Unless she's somehow able to eke out a living doing something or begging. I mean, that's what it would come down to sometimes. That's why you had beggars in the first century at the temple begging for alms. Because they, they were disabled and couldn't work. And this is the only way of surviving was to beg for their daily food. So, in heaven there's no longer any hunger or thirst or scorching heat. All of the things that would accompany persecution in the first century. Now, we, we can't really even relate to hunger or thirst. There may, you may be, has, has there ever been a day, unless you were fasting, that you had absolutely nothing to eat? Probably not. We're, we live in the land of plenty. But that wasn't necessarily the situation in the first century, especially in an agrarian society where they're all farmers and they're depending upon the rains and if they have a bad crop or if you have locusts coming in and wiping out and eating up everything, the hunger was a very real possibility. So if a father is expelled from the trade guilds because of his faith, his family could go hungry and thirsty. John himself probably faced the scorching heat when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. John himself was being persecuted and was going through tribulation because of his faith in Jesus Christ. So everyone in this multitude have come out of the great tribulation. Now they're in heaven. They're never going to face that great tribulation again. They've entered into their rest. The scorching heat is gone. Hunger and thirst are taken away. And there's plenty. There's the perfections and plenty of God given to them. The third privilege. The lamb's going to be their shepherd. Look at 17. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So this is Psalm 23 fulfilled. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We've got a shepherd now in heaven. And who is the shepherd? Jesus. What's it called here in verse 17? The lamb. Now isn't that odd? How can a lamb be a shepherd? <laughs> it's kind of reversing roles, right? <laughs> well, that we can when it comes to the book of Revelation because Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and now he's taken up the role of being shepherd for all of those that he has redeemed by his blood who end up in glory and in heaven. He is their shepherd. And where is this lamb, according to verse 17? Anybody see it? Where is the lamb at? He's in the midst of the throne. Who else is in the midst of the throne? God is. God and the Lamb are in the center of the throne. Never let anyone tell you that Jesus Christ is somehow uh, not fully God. If he is not fully God, how can he be in the center of the throne with God the Father, both sharing the same throne? Do you see what I'm saying? 
So if a Jehovah's Witnesses approach you and says, no, Jesus is not God. He's, he's a God, but he's not the almighty God. He's God's first and greatest creation. He's an angel, in fact. You just tell him, well, see you later. I, I, I'm not listening anymore. Because my Bible says he's in the center of the throne with God the Father. He's worshipped. Now, do you remember when someone tried to worship an angel? In the present, John bows down and was tried to worship an angel. The angel says, don't do that. Worship God only. Well, Jesus is being worshipped all the way through the book of Revelation as God. Yeah, yeah, we've got the one God manifest in three different persons. That's right. Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And now he's taking up that role of good shepherd, and he's actually providing shepherding to all of us in heaven forever. So we've saw where he's at. Where is he going to lead them? A shepherd always leads his flock somewhere, right? Where is this shepherd going to lead his flock? He will guide them to springs of the water of life. Let's just stop there. Springs, plural. Not one single spring. There are many different springs in this heavenly place we're going. And the spring speaks of abundance. It speaks of, well, water is something that quenches thirst and satisfies you when you're really thirsty. There's all kinds of springs that are going to be satisfying our every desire, every thirst in this kingdom. Jesus will lead us to one of these springs or to another. Now, what comes forth from these springs here in heaven? Do you see it there? The water of life comes forth out of these springs. Now, what does that mean? So we, we drink water, but what's water of life? Let me show you something. Go in your Bible to Revelation 22. And look at verse 1. Revelation 22.1. John says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from somewhere. Do you see where it's coming from? The throne of God and the Lamb. This river of the water of life is coming from a throne. This river is coming out of a throne where God dwells. What does that tell you about this water of life? The, the, the life that he's talking about is coming from God himself. Jesus is going to lead us to springs of the water of life. In other words, we're going to receive the fullness of the very life that is in God. That's what heaven will be like. We're going to be this refreshing, overflowing fountain that will supply every need. And, and what it is, is the very life that's in God himself is going to come to us and minister to our souls and our hearts for eternity. The curse is going to be removed. Persecutions are going to be banished. And this water of life points to all of the blessings and enjoyments and refreshments that God has for his people. So that's the second privilege of the redeemed multitude in heaven. The second blessing is that, actually it's the third. 
Let me go back and refresh this. The first one, they're always in the immediate presence of God. The second one is, they're never again going to face the sufferings of an earthly tribulation. Number three, the lamb is going to be their shepherd. And number four, the last one, God is going to wipe away every tear. That's what we find here at the very end of verse 17. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now we shed plenty of tears during our lifetimes. I wonder how many tears have come forth from our eyeballs over these years. Hundreds, thousands. Some of us cry more than others. But we all shed tears at one time or another. But we all shed our tears because of sin and its consequences in one form or another. But there's no reason for any tears in heaven because there is no sin in heaven to mar our joy. All tears of sadness and grief and pain and suffering are gone because that has passed and we're in a different world where those sin and all of its consequences are no more. We have righteousness and holiness and worship and fellowship with God. That's what this new place is all about. In Revelation 21, 4, it says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So oftentimes we cry when someone that we love passes away. They die. It's natural to cry when someone that you love is gone. But death is not going to be in this new place. No one's going to die there. Christ has already died. And his death is enough to wipe out death and to abolish the last enemy. And we are resurrected. We are immortal. Always to be in the presence of our Lord. And since we can't understand everything that heaven's going to have, John describes heaven by telling us what it won't have. There are certain things that we experience down here. Now, remember when Paul was taken away in a, in a vision? He was exalted to the third heaven, and he came back and he says, I, I can't explain to you what it was like where I went, because words fail me. Okay, so... I'm sure John couldn't do the same thing either. He, he could try to talk to us about what he saw and experienced in this heavenly place, but he couldn't really put it into words because it's beyond words. It's beyond any experience. But what he could say is it's not going to be like this and like this and like this that you've already experienced here on the earth. So what have we experienced? We've experienced te tears, death, mourning, crying, pain. <laughs> we've experienced all those things. Heaven's not like that, is what he's saying. It's not like this present reality. It's going to be altogether different. So all of the pain and suffering and tears and death will have been removed, and we can't even imagine the glories to come. John tries to paint a picture for us through symbols, but even then we have a hard time really, we, we can't really understand it. We, when we get there, we'll know. And until then... We know there's no sin there. God is there. That's enough for me. So let's just draw some conclusions. Some three conclusions. Number one, wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you're not a Christian, then that's what you need to do. You need to wash your robe. 
recognize that your life has been stained by sin and it's dirty in the sight of God and you need a, a clean white robe, symbolically speaking. And you wash them by putting your faith in Christ, trusting His death to atone for your sin. It's about as simply as I can put it. Trusting Him to save you. If a person hasn't done this, if they haven't washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, they should have no confidence in the, that they're on their way to heaven because heaven is populated only by people who have done that. That's the starting point. If you want to end up in heaven, this is where you got to start. And you should have no guarantee that you're going to enjoy God's presence forever. You have no promise that He's your shepherd and He's going to lead you to the springs of the water of life. And you have no assurance that every tear is going to be wiped away from your eyes. You've got to start by washing your robe. And you do that by faith in Jesus Christ. Second word of application is, this is for us as saints, look forward to heaven. Look forward to it. Ex have a joyful anticipation and expectancy of heaven. The joys and delights that we're going to experience are unspeakable and unimaginable. We can't fully understand them yet. But the joys of this world will not be able to compare with the joys of that world because the joys we experience here are all marred by sin in one form or another. The joys we experience there are going to be holy joys, righteous joys, unaffected by sin in any way. So what this comes down to is I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you to live for heaven, not just for earth, for heaven. Live for eternity, not just the present. Live for God, not just this world. Live for God. Let your longing for heaven grow. Become stronger as the years go by. So that when you die, you're not going to this, this foreign, uh, strange place you have no conception of. You're entering into something that you have been longing for and, and traveling towards your whole life. You're entering into the celestial city like Christian does. And then the final thing I want to encourage you is to learn about worship from the angels. Because remember we started this off, we talked about how the saints there cry out with a loud voice, salvation to our God. The angels respond to our worship by falling on their faces and saying amen, blessing and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So the saints, what do, we, what do we do when we're in heaven in terms of our praise? We talk about what God has done for us, how he saved us. Salvation to our God. You did it, God. What do the angels do? Instead of talking about what God has done, they talk about who God is. He's blessed. He's glorious. He's wise. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's honorable. And both of those are important for us when it comes to worship. The cross should fuel our worship because that's what God has done to save us. We sh that should be at the forefront of our thinking. And that's what we do and we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We remember the cross. But in addition to that, we should be worshiping and praising God for who He is. And what that means is that we recall in our minds what God is like. What are His attributes? What are His excellencies? 
oh, okay, he is love, he's just, he's righteous, he's holy, he's wrathful, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's generous. I mean, you can go on and on and on. And this should also fuel your worship of God. So when you're by yourself and you're just having a time of prayer, maybe take a couple of minutes and just remind yourself, what is this God I'm talking to you really like? And let that fuel thanksgiving and worship to bubble up within your soul for God. What he's done and who he is. We bring those both together and that's like throwing a log on the fire to cause it to burst into flame. Our worship just comes alive when we think about what God has done and who he is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we just humbly come before you today. Boy, heaven, heaven sounds so inviting, so attractive, so beautiful, and so precious. We thank you for the promise of eternal glory in heaven. And Lord, we thank you that we're on our way there. Each day we're traveling a little bit closer. One day we will cross the line between this life and the life to come and we will be in your immediate presence. And then in another time, Lord, you are going to resurrect our bodies and unite them to these perfected souls and we will be whole persons, not disembodied spirits, but whole persons once again. Resurrected, glorified persons in your presence, living in these new heavens and new earth that you're going to create worshiping you and delighting in you and always being in your presence and never having any shame, never any guilt, never any cause to be fearful or afraid because you have dealt with our sin which separates us. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. Work your word into our hearts and lives, Lord. Increase our level of expectancy and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.